But you know what I did the last couple of weeks? I learned superhero motions. My grandson, Graydon, he's three years old, ready to turn four, and he's got the moves down. Power Rangers, Superman, Batman, Iron Man, Ninja Turtles. He's got them. And uh, even Grandma learned some of them, I think. And uh, he can do it all on his own. And uh, it really works, uh, you know, for little guys. And actually, it's pretty effective in most everyone's life, uh, learning about a superhero, right? Um, for all of us as little children, even you who are the oldest and eldest here, uh, you had little, uh, you had those superheroes in your day and age as a, as a child growing up, right? They seem to be around all the time, and even in Greek mythology, right? They turn and make uh, gods out of uh, men and women. And so it goes in, in humanity, right? We all kind of tend to want to have that, um, that picture, that image of a, of a superhero. Well, um, Israel has the one true God. We've been in a study in the book of Exodus, and I really have been so blessed by this study. I hope you have too. It's, um, it relates to many, many issues in our lives, doesn't it? And so uh, the encouragement about you know, continuing on in reading in Exodus and studying, uh, studying God's Word. And by the way, if you weren't here in Sunday school, you missed an awesome, excellent class it's our first class on Bible study methods. I want to encourage you. We elders want to encourage you. Come next week. Come. It's so well worth it. And uh, join us for this series this summer on Bible study methods. Okay. Okay. So um, this morning we're talking about conquest of Canaan promised by God. The conquest of Canaan promised by God. We're in. Exodus uh, chapter 23, there's a, um, some notes in your bulletin if you want to follow along with that. And so, um, you know, it's one thing to have the motions down, you know, for my little grand, uh, our little grandson, you know. He does great at mimicking. But um, we aren't called to necessarily mimic as believers, we're called to take action and uh, not just have the right motions, but have the right heart. And we're going to see some very interesting things here in this passage, I believe, that um, we want to be eager to receive and welcome into our hearts to help us in our walk and in our fight in this life. Okay? So... Uh, there's been plenty of history lessons that we can learn from battles that were won and battles that were lost. Uh, World War One, World War Two, you know, in the last century of wars and battles, you know, there's plenty of books and videos on it. And some of you uh, that served in the military, uh, you have uh, visions of that and memories of that. Um, and so the, the thing is, most of us don't have that. We didn't, uh, it, maybe we didn't serve in the military at all. And, uh, and that's not necessarily, that's not wrong. It's just, that's the way it goes. And uh, so our idea of this thing of being in battle is pretty foreign to us. And yet for you who are Christians, you're in a battle. It's ongoing. And we're going to see what God promises here in this chapter. Chapter 23, starting at verse 20. And God says this, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him 
and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. So taking that portion right there, we want to look at first the provision for the conquest. The provision for the conquest is point number one. All soldiers know that to fight in any battle, they need the proper leadership, the proper equipment, the necessary provisions to be an effective soldier. And here in this opening section of of verse 20 through 23, God's reminding Moses of his promise that he will bring Israel into the promised land. It's, It's a given. God's promised that. He said it. I'm going to do this. We recognize the primary provision is what? And I suggest in point 1A is God's presence, the presence of God, the presence of God. In your outline, it says two, and I kind of messed that up as I sent that on to Rochelle, but it's the presence of God. That's the provision. And so... He says, behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way. To bring you to the place I have prepared Canaan, the land, the promised land. But we would stop and say, well, that could mean any angel. After all, we know of guardian angels, don't we? But how do we know this angel is the presence of God? The Lord says of him In verse 21, you look at verse 21, what does it say? Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. So letter B, the emphasis is on obedience. Obedience. Then he goes on to say, do not rebel against him. For he will not, and here's a catch, he will not pardon your transgression. Now that's not any old angel. That's now dealing with someone, something that only God can do. So this is not just any angel. And some commentators suggest that the angel is actually Moses because he's the spokesman to the people of Israel for God. He's God's spokesman. And so people think, oh, it's Moses that he's referring to. But Moses could never nor could Aaron, nor in turn Joshua, forgive sins. That's what's implied in verse 21. Then, on top of it, there's that phrase, for my name is in him. That's another key for us to understand that this is not just any old angel. This is the presence of God, because he's now representing the very name of God. Whenever you see that phrase about my name, the name of God, that ought to click off something in your mind that says, oh, this is all about his character, his attributes, right? This is God in the name of the Father, in the name. It's everything that he is about, all of his attributes, his character, his holiness, right? So, the call for Israel's obedience is another key to this idea of the identity of the angel. Also, just jot down this reference. It's a great cross-reference. Joshua, chapter 5, verse 13 through 15, where Joshua had led the people in, and uh, they're getting ready to go in uh, to Jericho, and who shows up? Joshua is off on his own, and who shows up? The, The commander of the Lord of hosts. Sword drawn. And what does Joshua do? He bows down. This is no ordinary angel. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God, 
that's showing up on the scene. And prior to this chapter 23, there were appearances of that angel leading and guiding. Okay? And so he, he guides and he guards or he leads and he guards the people of Israel. And that's the pre-incarnate Son of God showing up. He's from all eternity. He had no beginning and no, he has no end. And so here he is showing up on the scene for his people's sake and for the glory of God. Now, stop and think of this. This is what God wants. When we talk about the emphasis here regarding the provision of the conquest, the key to it is God. There's the presence of God. But what's the condition? Letter B, 1B, is obedience. That's the condition to it. God is the one who wants control of Israel. That's what he's suggesting. That's what he's implying. That's what he's commanding, that they obey him. That through all that they face, they understand that the battle is the Lord's. That's a key phrase for us in a passage like this. The battle is the Lord's. And they do battle. And again, we get back to this concept of war. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the best way for God to have control over his people, over our lives, is when we, one of our favorite hymns, when we trust and obey. You can finish it, right? For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And a lot of times we, we rack that up with uh, uh, some of these little cute courses that we do. Oh, it's just another nice hymn, nice, nice song. But there's great truth in it and it's really profound. It's not complicated. It's simple and it's profound and it's something you and I, no matter how old we are, need to keep doing. Trust and obey Him. Okay? And it's when we come to realize more and more that Jesus is all you need. God's all you need. (laughs) So that's the, the provision for the conquest. It's God Himself. He's the provision for us in our struggle, in our battle, as he was with Israel. Number two, the priority, the priority for conquest. The priority that is evident in this passage is true worship. And I say true because we need to zero in on this because there's all sorts of ideas, all sorts of variations on what worship should be. It needs to be true worship. Okay. And the more we, the more they, Israel, and the more we, Christians, and the church of Jesus Christ, understand true worship, the more we will grow and mature in our walk of faith. And the more we will advance the mission of God in our midst. Do you understand that? Israel was called to do the mission of God. They weren't just rescued and now comforted and, and given, you know, all this property, they were to be a light to the nations. And that's why we've got all these rules and precepts and ordinances that the people of Israel are given for their social government, for their civil government, as they now function as a different people. And a lot of people don't get that. They say, man, all those rules... Well, we don't understand the cultural aspect of what they were now involved in. All the nations around them were pagan nations. But here's the one true light shining through the people of Israel. So, under the priority of the conquest, which is true worship, letter A under number two is the loyalty and focus of true worship. The loyalty and focus of true worship. He starts by saying... In verse 24, 
get my spot there. Um, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Like, whoa, that's pretty stringent and rigid and wrathful and all that kind of stuff. Why don't we just, you know, work a compromise here? Right? I mean, that's how we, we, we like to negotiate things. God is telling his people, no negotiations. Not gonna happen. We'll understand that as we go along. He says, true worshipers, you know, the idea here is that true, for true worshipers, there's going to be a clear loyalty to worship and to serve the one true God by not falling for the world's version of worship of gods or their worship activities. And by the way, pagan worship activities were very attractive to the person that took their eyes off of God. You take your eyes off of God and look at what these guys are doing and, oh, that's actually pretty interesting. Why don't we, uh, come on, let's go try that. After all, many of the worship activities of pagan religions were about prostitution, sexual issues. Okay? And um, everyone born into this world, everyone born into this world has those instincts within them. That's that's kind of an attraction to me. And and on top of it, we get to worship. That's what happened later on in Exodus when they made the golden calf. They had orgy, party. We can do what we want. We're worshiping a false god. That's what it's that's what it's getting at. So the people of Israel are called for loyalty to the true worship. He says, "You shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces." This is worship? This is really worship? Well, I think we can see that. It shows one's loyalty and love for God. When you say, no, I'm not going to go there. That's a part of worship, isn't it? I have a love and loyalty to God. That's what I say, so I'm not going to go there. Mark down 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. And uh, in that passage, especially you who are young and still single or whatever, you know, it's not just for the young, it's for anyone who is single and, you know, considering marriage, right? In Second Corinthians 10, oh, I'm... I'm I'm getting it mixed up here. This this is a different passage here. Second Corinthians ten, um, three through five, talks about we walk in the flesh. We are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds or fortresses. Okay. Now I'll hopefully remember that other verse. Um, but for right now, we got to understand this certain passage is, is saying we do fight. We have battles. And it's, um, it's stated here in 2 Corinthians 10 that we destroy not the Hittites, not the Jebusites, but what? <laughs> we destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. Now, that doesn't mean you go out and start a fight and an argument with somebody that has a pagan worldview in our community. You get that? (laughs) What it means is you are destroying them where? In your own mind. In your own, in your own thinking. All of us have a worldview. And that worldview, if you're a believer, if you say you're a believer, that worldview needs to be about Jesus and Him alone. And and we grow and mature, and that worldview hopefully will grow and mature in line, in parallel with the Word of God. Okay? That's what maturing in the faith is really about. But this issue that I want to point out this, this is about spiritual warfare. It's very important that we understand this term fortresses. 
It could be defined as those things which have a sinful encampment in your life. A fortress is like um, the cliffs that uh, fortresses could be built in or dug out. And it's it just burrowed in there. And he's saying, we're going to get rid of those. Those are the things in our in our minds, in our hearts, in our thinking that are like fortresses. And we uh, we will destroy those strongholds. How? Well, again, through the, the help of God and through the teaching of his word. Okay. So if we don't deal with those fortresses, those holdouts, you know, those things in our lives, if we don't deal with them and really remove them, we end up being weak. We're really weak in our faith. Because those keep, it's like a, you know, I grew up in Minnesota and either in the lake or out in the forest when we were up at our lake cabin, you either get the, the leeches on your arm or leg and they just suck that blood and they, you got to yank it off or put salt on it or whatever, get it off of you. Or in the woods, it's the tick. And especially that tick, you know, he burrows in and that's, that's the picture. And, you know, you think, oh, what can that tick do to me to weaken me? Well, if you get enough of them, you get a problem. And that's the thing with our sin. We we don't think, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a I'm a I'm not a crazy adulterer or whatever. You know, all those ideas of what sin is, and we we kind of rationalize. But it's the little things that really start undermining your life in Christ. It's the little things that start chewing away just like the little tick or the termites or whatever you want to think you know whatever you equate in that way so there's also an aspect of focus on our worship the israelites were not to allow false worship practices to gain any hold or any stronghold in their lives in any way what we see from that is the issue of what we called what i mentioned before a world view what kind of world view do you have? How, how do you make decisions? You know, in, in basic areas of everyday life. And a lot of times, people that grow up in church and go to church all the time never take time to pray about a financial decision. Why? Why is that? Well, there's a certain world view that they're living by. And it doesn't involve the centrality and lordship of Christ. Because I go to church. That's all that really matters. I'm a religious person. And I like to sing or I like to do that. See, you're missing the boat. Christ wants lordship of our lives. Everything about us. All the way around. <laughs> the little things and the big things. And many of you have testimony about those little things that you have committed to the Lord in prayer and He's answered. And you're, you're saying, praise the Lord. Thank you, God, for how you work in our lives. And there's that, there's a sense of a real relationship there. Not a sense, but an evidence of a real relationship there. So this is the priority for conquest. And letter B is the blessings. Here's the results of true worship. Look at 25 and 26, verses 25 and 26. He will bless your bread and water. He will take your sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren. I will fulfill the number of your days. That's pretty amazing. You know, for the first part of it, that is awesome, divine health care. Other societies couldn't boast of that. You know that? Other nations could not boast that. And you know, the problem with Israel, they failed in their obedience. And guess what? You know, here's that condition thing. Again, it's a conditional, the conditional covenant idea is that when they didn't obey, God removed his blessing. God even sent them into exile because of their disobedience, etc. So, um, the priority of the conquest is worship. And that issue, listen, that's not for a Sunday morning. That's for every aspect of our lives, is that we are true worshipers. 
And we worship according to the scriptures, not according to opinions. We worship according to the scriptures. Number three, we move on to verses 27 through 31. We see the promises for conquest, the promises for conquest. Look at verses um, 27 in Exodus 23, verse 27 through 31. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possess the land. And regarding the land, verse 31 And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Okay, here are the promises of God about the conquest. Here's how he's going to lead. Here's how he's going to accomplish his good work. Letter A, with a powerful takeover. It's not just a nice soft takeover. It's a powerful, intimidating takeover. I will send my terror before you and before them. Okay? I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. That's why he listed those different nations. All those were small nations in that vicinity in the land of, in the promised land. And it shows this powerful takeover in verses 27 through 28 really shows what God thinks of idolatry. It wasn't just in the Middle East. It was really spread everywhere, wherever there were nations. Idolatry was going on. Why? That's what people do without God. That's what people do. So those nations that were in the European nations, what we know of Europe, uh, that location, well, idolatry was going on there. You know, further east, idolatry was wherever there are people, (laughs) idolatry was going on. Until what? Until the Spirit of God works to illuminate and to convict and to bring true worship. Okay? That it's only in Jesus. But it shows what God thinks of idolatry. It shows what He thinks of rebellion. It shows what He thinks of rejection. It shows what He's concerned about is He wants Israel to destroy the enemy. And again, we have a really hard time accepting that kind of thing. What's the motive there? What's behind it all? God's just angry with the people and He's biased towards Israel? I mean, he, he, he really likes Israel and they're his little, his little pet. He's going to protect them. What is it? What is it? God's holiness and God's glory. That's what it's about. And that the effect of his work in the people of Israel to make a difference in this world. That was the combination. God's glory, God's holiness, and God's work in His people. Okay? So that's the, that's the powerful takeover. But letter B, 29, in verses 29 through 30, you see, it's a wise takeover. Kind of like a gradual thing. It's not immediate and boom, they're in. No, it's a wise takeover. Verse 29, I'll not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I'll drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. It's not like they had a whole, you know, crew of guys in Humvees driving over the desert and, you know, getting in control of the land. They're still pilgrims, pilgrims walking through, journeying through. And then it's not just a wise takeover, it's a letter C, a vast. It's a vast takeover. If you can visualize a map of Israel in your mind, you know that Israel is like the size of, uh, 
I don't know, Massachusetts or, you know, it's not a huge land mass. You can travel from one end to the other, you know, to the north to south, you know, in a few hours. It's not large at all. That's, that's what we know. But what does God say? What has God given as a promise? <laughs> Do you get what he's saying here? He's saying, from what? From the Red Sea. Wait a minute, where's that? That's down near Egypt. All that land that they are moving through, down near Egypt, they got that, all that land up to the Sea of the Philistines, the Mediterranean. Oh, that's, that's, that's a larger piece of land that they got. But not only that, they, guess what? <laughs> now he's going to stretch it out to what river? The Euphrates. <laughs> that's a huge landmass. That's what God promised them. Why aren't they doing it? Why aren't they there? Why don't they own it? Disobedience. They didn't obey. God promised it. And yet, here's, here's their little land. And, and oh, by the way, you and I have the same problem. You and I have the same problem. Okay? And we're going to see that in a little bit. See, Many of us can figure out, as it was with Israel, so it is for many, many Christians who have failed to take possession of all that God has planned and provided for their lives. As a Christian, Ephesians 1 verse 3, what does it tell us? God has blessed us with what? A little drop. No. God has blessed us with every Spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What does that mean? In the heavenlies. Every spirit, every, every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. But for the most part, we're all too often guilty of what C.S. Lewis wrote. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. So, God's promised for the conquest. A powerful takeover, a wise takeover, a vast takeover. What does that mean for you? It's like, oh, well, that's Israel. God's promise is for you, believer, to overcome. Okay? To overcome. That brings us to point number four. Point number four, the partnership for the conquest. It's the partnership. You and I are called uh, to partner with God in his work. Look at verse 32 and 33. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. There's the warning. No covenants, we, meaning what? Make no agreement with them. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Well, as we can tell from this and other passages, the battle is the Lord's. It was for Israel. It is for the Christian. The battle is the Lord's. But God's people have always been on call. We're always on call for service and action. God expected and instructed the people of Israel to be ready, to be alert, to take action as God's people, identified as God's people. It's always been the plan of God for his people to plug in, get involved and be serving. That's the idea when he says for the Christians, it's the body of Christ and a body is supposed to work together like this. Of course, I didn't always get the motions right. But your body is supposed to work in coordination. 
And that's what the picture of the church is about. Are you a Christian? You're a, you are a member of the church, the body of Christ. And you have to have some sort of function, even if you're the pinky. So partnering in his work starts with a negative. Letter A under number four, maintain separation. We think that's a negative, but actually it can be a positive. <laughs> maintain separation. Make no covenant with them and their gods. Here's another great reference. A lot of uh, illustrations from the Bible come forth in this regard, but uh, Numbers 22 and 23, Numbers chapter 22 and 23, where we have the story of the prophet Balaam, who was called by King Balak of the Moabite nation. And he wanted some counsel from this prophet. Remember the story about the donkey talking to Balaam? Like, wow, God did a miracle there in putting words in the donkey's mouth to say, Balaam, you're doing the wrong thing. Don't go there. Well, guess what? Balaam eventually gave in to the pleading of King Balak. And we have a record of it in the New Testament, not just in Numbers 22 and 23. We've also got uh, references. It's Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Write that down. And Revelation 2, verse 14. Those two references are about what Balaam did. And King Balak wanted something to undo, uh, to slow down Israel. He knew Israel was coming and they had heard reports of what Israel was doing. He wanted something to work against this nation coming. And he figured, well, Balak could help him out. Well, sure enough, Balak did. Revelation 2, verse 14, I'm going to read that one to you. This is John the apostle writing to the churches for Jesus, saying, here are the letters of, the ch- of Jesus to the churches in Revelation. Okay? And one of them in particular says this, Revelation 2. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. What was the stumbling block? Specifically, Balaam had revealed to Balak how to undo the Israelites. Get them to mingle. Get them to socialize with the Moabites. And even, let's do some intermarriage here. And now is when I come to that passage about marriage that was drilled into me as a young man back in college days for single people saying, do not marry an unbeliever. You do not marry an unbeliever. There is no such thing as missionary marriage. It really isn't. It's clear. Now, I'm not... uh, Whatever has happened in your past and and you married an unbeliever, you know, you, you deal with that in the best way. You just go for it and say, I'm going to shine for Christ in this marriage. But God's word is clear about not um, being at one with an unbeliever. It, It applies to businesses too. In business, you don't partner with, you have no fellowship with them. And most of the time that passage is, is understood as about, it's about marriage. But it's not specifically stating marriage in that. We, we apply it to different uh, areas of life. But it is very helpful for our young people to understand this. Not to marry an unbeliever. Because it's like, you know, you get married and you're supposed to be one. The two shall be one. And so you get married and the two shall be one isn't happening with an unbeliever because the unbeliever is not going to want to follow Christ. Pay attention to this, you know, and and put into action in your life. Understand and wait on God. Wait upon the Lord. Be the right person 
in God's eyes, don't perform and, and gain popularity, you know, from others. Do the right thing and be the right person. And God will bless. So that's maintain separation. Okay? And that's the problem that Balaam spilled to Balak. Just let him intermingle and intermarry. Let her be. Not only maintain separation, but maintain purity. They, they overlap. Maintain purity. They shall not dwell in your land. It was not about a 50-50 compromise or a 60-40 or a 70-30 compromise. They shall not dwell in your land. God's instruction was to destroy them. Okay? And again, this is about God's holiness and thus Israel's holiness, their purity. So, look at the last phrases here where it says, lest they sin against me, or lest they make you sin against me. Um, This is very important that we understand this, my friend. Um, Ministry, you know, in the book of Acts, even with Jesus sending out his disciples, how did he send them out? Two by two. Um, It was partnering Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, um, Paul and Timothy, uh, Luke. You know, Dr. Luke was hanging around and and involved. Um, the, The issue of teamwork is really important in going out in ministry, okay? Um, it's always harder to influence. It's always easier to be influenced. You get that? And so, our, again, I think a lot of times of our young people, they get influenced very easily. I've, I've been here, you know, since 1995, and I've seen way too many of our young people come through these doors, be involved in ministry, and then leave, go to a place like UNR, other schools and such, and they get kind of blown out of the water spiritually. Their roots haven't grown deep, and they start listening to professors, fellow students, the, the scene in the world, and they start shifting their eyes off to other other things and do not stay dedicated or devoted to the Lord Jesus. And it's a sad testimony. And so what that's what we're about here. That's what we want to do here is as the roots go deeper, right? Let's do the motion. <laughs> the roots go deeper. The fruit comes and all for all to see what that Jesus is the Lord of me. And it's not a friendly uh, world out there to the things of God, to the to the grace of God. And so we need to encourage our we need to encourage everyone and especially our children and young people about staying true to the Lord in their lives. Then um, says, for if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Okay, an entrapment. It's, it wasn't merely an Old Testament problem because it's very easily uh, shifted to our day and age right here, right now. The things that we get entrapped with, the, the old chains that we go put back on, that's, that's a ridiculous statement. But in some cases, it's true. A Christian, you know, will give in to the temptations, and it's in essence as he's putting, she or she is putting the chains of sin back on them. The chains that Jesus broke and set you free from. These are some of the entrapments, the snares. What do you get ensnared by? And for most of you, it's nothing, you know, major. It's because most of you have been going to church all of your lives and you've been walking with the Lord. And so we think, well, there's nothing major in my life. But yet, again, there's little things that nip away at you, that try to trip you up. Watch out for that and identify them. 
And it's easy. You know, we say, oh, it's just old habits. It's just the way I am. And we rationalize. We thought, well, you know, and here's the statement we all know so well. Well, no one's... Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that a safe place? No, no one's perfect. True. But you know how God sees you? If you're a believer, God sees you as perfect. Flawless. He sees you as flawless. Why? Because of Christ. Not because of you, because of Christ. So my desire in my life needs to go where? Towards perfection. I'm not going to make perfection, but I want to grow in that way. That's the direction of your life, is it not? And so we say, Lord, please strengthen me and help me in this way. And, you know, people rationalize also by saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with doing it again. You know, I, I know I'm forgiven. Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? What's the answer? May it never be. May it never be. And so, I tell you, it's so good. Um, we've been gone for a while. It's so good to be back home and to be encouraged. No one's come up to me specifically to encourage me, but just to be around you folks again. And yesterday, the work day, um, you know, it was great. And thank you folks for that were here with the work day, you know, it's getting set up. Doesn't this look great? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, they, they aren't life size. Good, good for us, right? Um, but it's okay. It's a good job. There, there's just a lot of encouragement in this. And um, I think that's what I want to, we want to wrap it up with is here's point number five, moving on in the conquest. As we close it here with this, we need to understand moving on in the conquest is exactly what the Christian life is all about. Do you go through point number one, go through point number two, three and four. It's, that's what the Christian life is all about. Who's your provision? You know, it's Jesus. He is your provision. You need nothing else. Yes, you need to work. Yes, you need to go to the grocery store and pay the bills and all that. We get that. But Jesus is all you need. And like the people of Israel were headed to the promised land, that was a picture of going into their rest, was it not? That's the idea of going into rest. We're done wandering. We're done in slavery. We're going into rest. What is it for you, Christian? Is it constant checklist, checklist, checklist? No, it's Jesus. Jesus is your rest. Will you let that simmer? Jesus accomplished it all for you. And yet, yes, there's still the issue of partnering with Him. Not for the purpose of gaining acceptance. You're already a child of God if you've come to faith in Christ. But it's still the issue of I'm not just waiting to go to heaven. I'm involved in ministry, in joining in with what God is doing. Okay? So moving on in the conquest is what the Christian life is all about. But for many, I understand, and most of you do understand this, there might be those who feel like it's futile. I'm feeling like I can't win. And many of us have felt that way. I just can't win. I'm forever this way. I can't overcome. And then, maybe for others, there's the concern, there's really a show of little concern about any of this. Little con, there's, a, there's a show of little concern for the fight, little concern for fighting off sin, little concern for truly honoring the Lord in, in your life. Really, little concern for trying to show a difference of being a Christian. After all, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven. 
kind of push it aside. God didn't save you for that purpose. God saved you to get you involved, to get you active, to get you serving, to get you shining as a light in a dark community called Fallon, Nevada. And then there are those who know of the struggle and have been stung by the issues of death and loss and hurt and pain. And they know of the source of their strength is in Jesus. Okay? That's the, that's the key. It's not that we're, we're making perfect Christians. Good grief. What a thought. What a ridiculous thought. We don't, but we're building, we want to edify and build Christians so that they know that they are weak. And they know where to go regarding the source of their strength is in Christ. They're like, you know, it's like learning more and more of the scriptures. And when you come across a passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, write it down. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, where Paul writes and says, And he has said to me, who's that? Jesus has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Again, if we let that sink in. A lot of times we're thinking, I've not lived in that kind of a way. I've not lived in that way. That I acknowledge that His grace is sufficient for me. I've been behaving in such a way that I'm trying to gain popularity or gain acceptance or whatever from God. Look at me, God. Look at what I did. Or even, you know, the fear of people. I want to I wanna perform for people. And that's really the fear of man. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in what? Weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. What a, what a flip and, and a turnaround from the things of the world. The world says, you be you and you be strong. You, 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 you can do it. You can do it. All that. And it's a subtle twist and perversion of what the Bible says. I'm going to boast in about my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Jesus then is your strength, Christian. He is your strength. He is your hope. He is your joy. He is your all in all. He is sufficient. Okay? He is all you need. He's God. What kind of God is He? Okay? So, to move on in the conquest, believers do well to know more and more of what Christ has accomplished, so to equip us for the walk, so to equip us for the battle that we face each day. And the battle, again, I I like to, you know, run through that list of nations. The battle is not against those nations. It's not like you've got to go face the Hittites today. You have to go face sin in your life today. You have to battle sin. You've been, if you're a Christian, you've been pardoned. You've been set free and no longer guilty. You are now forgiven and pardoned in Christ. And yet the sin is still there. The presence of sin is still there. The penalty is wiped away. The presence of sin is still there. Okay? And you and I still do battle with it today, tomorrow, and each and every day. But will you stop and recognize this? And this is the last passage. It's Romans 8, 37. Do you know what, without looking it up, do you know what you are in God's eyes in Romans 8, 37? You better get to know it. You need to know it. In regards to the battle, you're an overcomer. You're a super conqueror. We, I love it. It goes right in with my grandson, Graydon. You know, he knows the motions for the superheroes. But guess what? 
his sin is showing up more and more and more as a little guy. <laughs> Do you know, you, you get that? His, his sin is coming forth more and more. Even though he knows the motions of a superhero, he's still got a sin problem. You might know the motions of our superhero, Jesus. <laughs> but you might not be living it out in your life. And that's, that's the idea that he has called us to, Christian, is to grow, is to move on in this conquest that he has accomplished. The battle is the Lord's. So, be honest with yourself right now. Be honest, really honest. What do you think has ensnared you? What's been conquering you? What kind of sin enemy are you battling? Is it bitterness? Do you battle gossip? Do you battle slander, anger, depression, coveting, idolatry? All of us have a problem with that. <laughs> you know, and so in some ways, you know, there's still those little fortresses burrowed in that we need to say, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to pull that out. I'm going to relinquish it. I'm going to release it. I want to. Trust God to help me move on and grow in faith. Even the issue of self-sufficiency. Some of you control freaks out there. (laughs) We need to understand those are issues that we turn over to the Lord. And listen, we have a whole list of dysfunctional issues. (laughs) All of us. And they can never be checked off completely to say, okay, I checked off my list and... I've graduated, I've overcome, or whatever. No, we have a continual, ongoing need for Jesus. We have a continual, ongoing need for the filling of His Spirit in your life, in my life. We have a continual need for God's grace, for the input and practice of God's truth, for trusting and obeying, for growing in love with Him. For seeing and longing for his glory to be shown. And he is why we can be counted among the super conquerors. It's because of Jesus. So, I want to have you just. Uh, stand with me right now. We're closing that up. Romans eight thirty seven. In all these things, we are overwhelmingly overwhelmingly conquerors through Him who loved us. I emphasized overwhelmingly. You know what the key word is? Two key words. Through Him. Through Him. Because He has loved us. So, um, today we go and we recognize the battle. And that the battle is the Lord's. Let's pray. Thank you, O God, for how great you are. Lord, uh, we confess that so often we minimize you and maximize ourselves or our situations. And we want to magnify you. As John the Baptist said, we want to decrease and we want him to increase. Help us with that, dear Lord. Please do your good work in our lives to form Christ in us more and more and more. Thank you that Christ is our, our great conqueror, our great victor, our perfect Savior and our perfect leader. We humble ourselves before you and pray that you would be glorified in our lives this day as we make decisions, as we respond to people, 
as we spend time alone, as we serve in VBS, as we pray in all these things, Lord, may we be relying on you. Thank you, Lord, for these dear people. Thank you for your good work that you will continue doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.